Let us pray. Holy God, word made flesh, let us come to this word open to being surprised. Silence our agendas, banish our assumptions, cast out our casual detachment, confound our expectations, clear the cobwebs from our ears, penetrate the corners of our hearts with this word. We know that you can, we pray that you will, and we wait with great anticipation. Amen. Our first scripture reading this morning is from the Old Testament book of Psalms. There will be two readings, and the first is Psalm 13, verses 1 through 4, which can be found on page 484 of your pew Bible. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have prevailed. My foes will rejoice because I am shaken. Our second reading is from Psalm 16, verses 5 through 11 on page 485 and 486 of your Bible. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a goodly heritage. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I keep the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my soul rejoices. My body also rests secure. For you do not give me up to Sheol or let your faithful one see the pit. You show me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second lesson comes from the Gospel of John. I'll be reading from the 21st chapter, the first 14 verses. Let us continue to listen for the Word of God. This is uh, one of the resurrection appearances uh, of Jesus recorded by John. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, <clears throat> Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know it, did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, you have no fish, have you? They answered, No. And he said to them, Cast the net to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. 
So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and he jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the full net of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Got the blues. That's an expression I haven't heard in a number of years now, but when I was younger in Mississippi, I used to hear some of the old timers say that. Um, it, it confused me and others at first because I weren't, wasn't sure what they were saying. I thought they were really saying God, but they weren't. Got the blues. Got the blues. Now, my mother-in-law who said that was a Mississippi girl, and Mississippians uh, are familiar with the blues, both as a musical genre and as a feeling of melancholy and depression. Maybe Mississippians have more to be depressed about. I don't know. But anyway... Mississippians know about the blues. Mississippi is the birthplace of the blues. Alabama may have its Robert Trent Jones Golf Trail, and South Carolina has its Gullah Geechee Cultural uh, Corridor. But in Mississippi, they have the Mississippi Blues Trail. And you can go throughout the delta of Mississippi on Highway 61, Highway 1, and some others, and go to famous juke joints and homes of legendary blues musicians and singers uh, that populated that area from the, after the Civil War up until the early part of the, uh, before 1950, I'd say. But the blues were so popular. And the blues as a genre of music influenced so much other music. Uh, rock and roll, for sure. Motown, soul music, gospel music, uh, for sure. But if you grow up in Mississippi, I know there are some fellow Mississippians here this morning, you are somewhat familiar with the blues, both as music and as depression. The blues are really about misfortune. You sing the blues because some traumatic event has turned your life upside down. Maybe you've been abandoned by someone you love. Maybe you've been betrayed by a friend. Maybe the floods have washed your home away or... Your crops have failed or your dog has died. There's all kind of things that prompt the singing of the blues. And you don't have to be from Mississippi. You don't have to be a descendant of one of the slaves that worked along those plantations in the delta of Mississippi when the blues were created to experience the blues and to feel the blues. This is a universal phenomenon, really. And it's brought about by different things. Often a change in life circumstances, but I know it can also be a genetic thing. There's a propensity for that. I have that in my family, so I'm pretty sensitive to that. Even the weather can bring on the blues. 
In the winter, we read about seasonal affective disorder, better known as SAD, a condition that's brought on by uh, the diminishing of daylight and the absence of warmth and light. It doesn't affect everybody, but it affects many people in the winter months of the year. Other people, by contrast, are energized by it. Hunters and snowboarders and skiers often uh, are excited and welcome the darkness and the cold and the snow. But I too suffer from SAD, seasonal affective disorder, but it's a SAD of a different sort. It's really an occupational uh, hazard for clergy. Uh, but the truth remains that I am seasonally affected and disordered by this season after Easter. How so? Well, let me tell you. No, no. You have to sing the blues, so let me sing about it. I got the post-resurrection baby, predestined low Sunday blues. And if you hadn't had them, I sure hope that you never do. Cause the palms have all wilted, the lilies are brown, the pews are near empty and the offering is down. I got the post-resurrection baby, predestined low Sunday blues. Low Sunday is what they call this Sunday after Easter, and it's appropriately named. Last week, 2,500 people in worship. At this service last week, there were nearly 400 people in overflow in the net. Joyous worshipers singing triumphant songs about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means for our lives today. And each year, I think, they're going to come back. <laughs> they're going to come back. I delude myself into thinking that. I identify with uh, Charlie Brown of Peanuts fame. You know, every year Lucy holds that football for Charlie Brown to kick. And every year she pulls it away at the last minute and he falls on his backside. And I keep thinking, oh, they're, they're going to come back. They're going to recognize that Easter's not just about one day. Every Sunday in the Protestant tradition is a mini Easter. We know that. But just like Lucy pulls away the football, the, the throngs from Easter disappear that's why the way I've dealt with it is not to deal with it. I've usually gone out of town after Easter. Try, try to take a week off, try to get a friend or one of the associates to, to preach in, in, in my stead. I'm not unlike the Apostle Peter in our lesson this morning. He was depressed. He was down. His friend had been taken from him. His Lord was gone. And so he says, I'm going fishing to get away from it all. And so he does. And we see people throughout the scriptures dealing with their depression. If you listen carefully to the two uh, lessons from the Psalms this morning, in the first, in Psalm 13, King David is lamenting his lot in life. He's complaining against God. Why has God forgotten him? Why has God hidden his face from him? How long would he have to suffer the indignities and the threats of his enemies? But then you turn over the next pages, Psalm 16, just the opposite. David is rejoicing. In the goodness of life, in the abundance of life, in the pleasures of life. Same man, two disparate moods and experiences. And you and I are like that. If it was like that for King David, if it was like that for the Apostle Peter, it's like that for us too. Because life is replete with times of exhilaration and despair, of pleasure and pain, of encouragement and depression. 
And so this morning, I just want to reflect with you for a while on this subject of depression, something that nearly all of us experience, I would imagine, at some point in our lives. Certainly, practically every family is touched by it in some way, shape, or form, mine included. So I'm not just talking about the low Sunday blues, but that's just representative of a lot of the kinds of blues we feel in life. I received a letter um, after one of the early services. Someone picked it up, so I can't read you a portion of it, but it was a letter from my um, alma mater in Mississippi, Bellhaven, a little Presbyterian school. has about 1,200 students. But they were trying to generate some financial support to add more counselors to their staff because of young people today that are so depressed and experiencing diagnosed mental conditions. 25% of undergraduates encounter some kind of depression. 75% of that 25% will have a serious mental breakdown before they're out of school and working. The numbers seem to be growing. And not just uh, among those who may be middle-aged or older, but by young people today, even children and youth. Physicians are trying to get people acquainted and help them to recognize when their own children are experiencing this. Now, for definition's sake, let's just say that depression is a mild or intense experience of sadness, pessimism, apathy, even self-condemnation. It may be marked by feelings of unworthiness, of frustration and despair. It can be accompanied by guilt and anger and restlessness and the inability sometimes even to get out of bed and accomplish one simple thing. And in extreme cases, of course, it's been known to lead to suicide. Now, I can justify dealing with this issue from the pulpit, not simply because it's low Sunday, uh, but because Paul has admonished Christians to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And one of the burdens threatening humanity today, and perhaps as in previous days, but certainly now, is this matter, matter of depression and how we recognize it, how we try to cope with it. So just a few observations, if you will, from my own life and experience. Uh, when we or those we love are going through a depression, it's really helpful to realize that this is temporary, ordinarily. It won't last forever. Whether we're down or whether we're high, both are temporary. And sometimes when life is going very, very good, I think to myself, well, I wonder when the other shoe's going to drop. And sometimes when things are really bad, I'm thinking, well, it won't last forever because I've gone through this before. And God will bring me through it again. Even King David recognizes the two extremes. If you look at the last verse in Psalm 13, you will see how the mood changes. He says, but I trust, because I trusted in your steadfast love, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Notice going back and forth between past tense and future tense. Because David knows how the Lord has blessed him in the past, he is confident that the future will be different, even in the darkest of times. So we need to recognize that these episodes and these moods are temporary. They will change. And secondly, one of the most helpful things I think depressed people can do is simply admit to their depression. 
and share that, especially with their close friends and family members. And this is a problem for Christians so often because Christians think that depression ought to be beneath us. That depression is a sign of human weakness or maybe spiritual immaturity. It is neither of those. And if you look, some of the greatest figures in Scripture, heroes and heroines we recognize, went through deep depressions. Whether you were talking about King David or Elijah or Jeremiah or Job or even the Lord Jesus Christ says in the garden, My soul is deeply sorrowful. I am grieved even unto death. And he asked his friends to remain and pray for a while which they were incapable of doing. And then he pleads to his father to take this cup, this experience in life from him if it be possible. So when we are depressed or when those about us are, I think it's helpful to talk about it, to admit it, especially to ourselves but also to others. And I think depressed people ought to be given the liberty, even the encouragement to vent their feelings as inappropriate as they may seem to others. If they feel like crying, they ought to cry. That's why the Lord gives us tear glands. If they feel like screaming, they ought to close the window, shut the door, and scream their heads off. That may seem a little crazy, but it can be therapeutic. I heard of a couple one time. They were both down at the same time, which is a deadly thing. You married people can realize. But there was a lot of tension and anxiety in the home. And so... The wife just lost it in her madness one day. She took a glass vase and threw it down in the middle of the kitchen floor and shattered it. The husband stared at her furiously, didn't say a word. There was tension in the room. But then he reached over and handed her a jar of mayonnaise. Crash! In the middle of the floor. A smile began to come to his face and he handed her a jar of pickles. Then jelly. Then olives. And soon, after six or seven smashes, they were both laughing hysterically and they collapsed on the couch. The pent-up tension and anger somehow released in the midst of all that debris in the middle of the floor. What the husband had wisely done was to allow his wife the freedom to vent in what was a seemingly harmless, though admittedly messy, fashion. Another thing in dealing with depression is generous doses of patient love are in order. But that's not as easy as it sounds because depressed people are often the hardest to love. They're hard on themselves, but they're hard on those that are closest to them too. They often take out their anger and their frustration on family and friends. But if we're going to help others bear the burden of their depression, then we have to maybe allow them to hate us for a while. If you really want to make a difference, if you want, really want them to show a love that is patient, then give them that kind of freedom and be as patient as you can and as supportive as you can. Something else I've learned through the years, not just in dealing with depression in my family, but as a minister, is the importance of touch. You might call it the therapy of touch. Sometimes when we don't know what the right words are to say, we can just hug someone, give them a handshake. I have been the recipient of this kind of therapy and I've dispensed it. And I've seen it work in, in hospital rooms and funeral parlors at other places where grieving and hurting people may gather. You don't have to say much, but just the hug or the embrace, the clasp of the hand says so much. I just thought of an experience when, when I was 
serving a church in Mississippi, there was a girl in the church that was beloved by everyone, a young mother by the name of Teresa. And a friend of mine, we're standing over the side at this party, there were probably 40, 50 people in the room, and I said, what is it about Teresa? Everybody loves Teresa and feels close to Teresa. And he said, just keep your eye on Teresa, watch what she does. And she would go around the room, she'd talk to someone, she'd put her hand on their elbow or their arm, walk up beside someone, just touch them, passing them by. And just that simple touch in conversation made people feel connected. I remember reading of a study one time of cashiers at 7-Eleven stores. They interviewed people coming out of the stores. If the cashier actually put the change and the money in the person's hand and touched the hand, those people responded positively to having been there. But if the cashier puts the, they were instructed to do this, puts the change and the bills on the counter and the person has to pick it up without touching the cashier, their experience in that store was much worse. Simply by the touch of a hand. There's an anonymous poem that goes like this. It's the human touch in the world that counts, the touch of your hand and mine, that means far more to the fainting soul than shelter or bread or wine. For shelter is o'er when the night is gone, and bread lasts only a day. But the touch of a hand and the sound of a voice live on in the soul always. So, recognize and confess your depression when you're feeling it. Be encouraged to express your feelings in any way that's not harmful for you or others. You need generous doses of patient love. You need a therapeutic touch. You need also, people need to be encouraged when they're down to do something physical. Anything, the simplest of things, but usually things that they can see the result of what they do make a difference. So if you or someone you know are going through a depression, just encourage them to go wash the car. Go mow the grass. Memorize a poem. Write a letter to someone you haven't talked to in decades. And just that simple act where you can see the difference it might make can often lift your spirits. It's a tonic in and of itself. The medical community has long recognized the connection between emotional and physical health. And physical exertion itself can be an antidepressant. And recognize that if you're going, I imagine there's some of you here this morning going through a depression. The statistics would suggest that. If you are, just keep in mind that a lot of very capable, outstanding people have gone down this same valley before you and will do so again. And it seems to me, I've noticed so often, it seems that the more capable and accomplished persons are, the more susceptible they are to depression. I don't know why that is, but it's been an observation over many years for me. But other people have gone through this. 1835 was the year Anne Rutledge died. She was in love with, another, with a man, and uh, a week after her death, he was in such grief and depression that he was found wandering through the woods along the Sagamon River mumbling incoherently. He had friends nearby who went and found him. They brought him back to their home, to their farm, and they put him to work. They wouldn't let him even carry his pocket knife. They were so fearful that he might use it against himself. But they put him to work on the farm, picking apples, shucking corn, digging potatoes. And by the fall of that year, that was in the summer, by the fall of that year, 
He had made extreme progress, and the old orderliness of his life had begun to return. And so by the fall of 1835, Abraham Lincoln was able to return to his seat in the Illinois legislature. Finally, depressed people, keep in mind that others have gone through this experience just like you have. And they have come through it. And so too can you. So with the help of some friends, with a little therapy and touch, we can get through our depression. Yes, I got the post-resurrection, baby, predestined, low Sunday blues. But I've had them before. So maybe, baby, this ain't news. I know the Lord is with me. I've got some friends around with a little help and healing touch. I won't stay down despite the post-resurrection, baby. Predestined low Sunday blues. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, in our moments of darkness and in our times of depression, remind us of your presence and give us your grace. Help us to acknowledge and confess our feelings and to express them appropriately. Encompass us with patient love, with understanding friends who stand beside us and undergird us. Enable us to give help when and where we can and to seek help as we should. Free us not only to bear the burdens of others in the name of Christ, but to allow others to help us bear our burdens as well. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our great physician. Amen.